we are always seeking to do the things of God. This is, after all, the reason, ultimately, that we are built to praise, serve, to know God, and to, by that means, to save our souls, praising, reverencing, serving Him. And, of course, our service of God leads us to our service of others. But that formulation that St. Ignatius of Loyola gives at the beginning of the spiritual exercise is that man is created to praise, reverence, serve God. It is that praise that we spoke about this morning. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is the highest form of praise that we can give to God, returning to God that which He has given to us through the mystery of His Son, that praise and adoration that is perfectly given perfectly, received. Once we have begun to allow ourselves to properly praise God, to reverence Him, and then that leads to our service. But in one sense, at times they happen all at the same moment, of course, in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. They also happen, in a sense, outside of, if you will, outside of the context of Mass as well, as we, through our own prayer and our own service and our own work, Allow God to transform us. And of course, we spoke this morning about the power of the Eucharist to indeed make us into the men that we know we want and, more importantly, we ought to be. This is God's work, after all, and in order for it to be completed, he is going to have to be the primary actor. But as St. Augustine reminds us, God does not create us with our consent, and God will not save us without that consent. Seemingly, it would have been easier if God simply had not brought me into existence, although that's a hard philosophical position to uh, uphold because I don't know what it is not to exist. I don't know what that means. I have no point of reference. I don't know anybody who has a point of reference to what it means not to be because all of us only know what it is to actually be. So to say that wouldn't have been easier if God had not created me really is not philosophically tenable. It's not theologically logical, but it certainly is easy if I simply don't want to be bothered. And then that makes it even more difficult. So not only does he bring me into existence without my permission, but since he's already done that, I would like him to just go ahead and do the rest of the work. But he won't do that either. He won't save me unless I actually cooperate. I participate. Yes, I am saved insofar as all creation has been redeemed by the mystery of the Lord's cross, the shedding of his blood, the gift of his body. That is a true theological statement. It's a truth, period. Not just a theological statement. It is. It's true. But I have to cooperate with that. I have to work with God, not to earn what it is that he has gained for me but to take better advantage of what it is that he's gained from me. And again, I wonder, Lord, couldn't you have made this just a little bit easier, not so complex? But the complexity, brothers, comes really not in knowing what to do because we know what we ought to do. It's complex in actually doing it. Remember, we got Ten Commandments. They are morphed into 6,000 different rules. By the time the Lord comes to his public ministry, he says, there's just two. You couldn't handle ten. You certainly can't handle 6,000. I'll just give you two. And since there are kind of variations on the theme, there really is just one. You have to love. Now, of course, what does it really mean to love? Well, then he goes and he shows us what it means to love. So any question you can anticipate, any kind of conundrum you can throw at God, he's already answered that. He's already hobbled you in 
But what is, who's my neighbor? I got the answer to that too. How do I do this? You carry a cross. The answers are always there. It's not a lack of knowledge, really not even a lack of understanding. It's configuring ourselves more completely to God's will and simply going about the business of doing it. The lion's share of my life has been in seminary formation, although I am no longer in seminary formation. Uh, but of the 22 years, almost 23 years of my life, 15 of those were spent in seminary formation as a director of sacred liturgy, which meant I spent a lot of time in chapels. My last seminary at which I worked was in Columbus, Ohio. I had four chapels that I had to care for every single day, two of which were used for mass every single day, the other ones for prayer, private masses. And every now and then I would find myself... Um, overwhelmed by the peace that would come as I rushed from one chapel to another to another to accomplish the things I was supposed to do. And I'd always find myself saying, I should spend more time here. This is where God is after all. It seems to be a good thing. I feel better when I'm actually here. And it would almost come as a surprise to me as if somehow I didn't know that the very thing to which I devoted my whole life, God, was present here in the chapel, which he is, and I had the specific responsibility of caring for the chapel, but it always kind of caught me off guard. And I would resolve, okay, today is going to be the day that I'm going to make a better effort to spend more time with God. A week, two, three, four, a month. I'd be back again in the chapel. This feeling would overcome me. It's almost like Groundhog Day, reliving the same day over and over and over again. Except I'm not getting better at the piano when this is happening. Instead, I'm just all of a sudden, I've been here before. I've had this great idea about wouldn't it be nice to spend a lot of time in the chapel. And I'm going to resolve to do that. You get the idea. It's not hard in the knowing. It's difficult in the doing. But God knew that about us. After all, he created us. He saw what we did with his creation when Adam and Eve warred against God. He saw how we responded to him when he established covenant with us, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of course, setting his chosen people free from slavery and even then, after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they still couldn't be pliable, couldn't be formed in God's hands. They were wanting to govern themselves, and they wanted to be like everyone else, and they wanted kings. Then they started worshiping all the false gods. Each time, God would reach out to them again and remind them of the covenant, remind them of the things that he had done, the things that he was doing. God never asked us to put blind trust in him. God never said, I'm going to give you something later on, just go ahead and trust me right now. God said, I'm going to tell you right up front what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it, and what it's going to do for you. And that's precisely then what he has done and what he continues to do. There's nothing secret. There's nothing hidden. God doesn't play games with us. That's Satan. He whispers and he lies and he slithers and he confounds and he confuses. God is clarity and peace. God is right up front. Nothing hidden, nothing secret, nothing unknown. And again, don't confuse mystery with this, because mystery is not that which is unknown. Mystery is that which cannot be exhausted. When we say God is mysterious, we don't mean that God is unknown to us. What we mean is God can't be exhausted. I'm never going to exhaust God's love for me, but I know what it means for God to love me. I'm never going to be able to exhaust God's mercy no matter how often I go to the throne of mercy or approach uh, the tribunal of mercy in the sacrament of reconciliation, that mercy will always be there. It is a wellspring that never runs dry. That's where the mystery rests. 
but I know of what mercy, what love, compassion consist. And so we go to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass on a Sunday, Sunday, but certainly maybe even day to day if we're blessed and able to do so. We go in order that we can be transformed. We can be better molded. And the more we allow God to mold us, the easier it is for us to live his commandments. The more I experience the love of God in the holy sacrifice, the easier it is for me to love others. And I know this to be true, not only from my own life, but from the lives of the holy men and women who have gone before us, those who are declared saints, but those that you know in your own life who were saints to you. And part of their holiness, part of their saintliness, consisted in the sacrifice of themselves. How does one learn to sacrifice with joy? By entering into the greatest sacrifice with joy. And that's the holy sacrifice of the Mass. But then that leads us to where I want to reflect on a little bit this afternoon before we spend time with our Eucharistic Lord in adoration. Because if we then can truly learn to worship God the way God wants to be worshipped, we then can live rightly with God and others as God intends us to be. Which brings us back to where we began in our reflections last evening. We're seeking to emulate St. Joseph in his fatherhood, in his custodial care for the greatest treasures of God, in his patronage for the universal church, for his model not only of fatherhood but of manliness itself, what it means to be the righteous man before God. And we want to live these things out in the manner in which we interact with others. And so we went from that to allowing the Mass to transform us. And now we're back again to this intimate connectedness between right worship and right conduct. Think back to the Exodus experience. And Benedict XVI, before he was Benedict XVI, reflected often about the nature of liturgy. And he reflected especially about the Exodus experience in relationship to the value, the necessity, uh, the, uh, the almost inextricable significance of worship being the first thing that God does and instructs and admonishes his people. And so Moses is told to go to Pharaoh to do what? Tell my, let my people go three days' journey in the desert to worship me. We always tend to forget that because we jump to the fact that the Exodus experience was indeed that. The chosen people set free from the drudgery of the slavery into which they had been bound. But before God sets them free, which is going to take some time, Pharaoh's heart, after all, is indeed hardened before them. When God sends Moses... Moses' response, or Moses' tell to Pharaoh was to let my people go three days' journey into the desert to worship me. And then begins the negotiation. Pharaoh says, no. Then he says, the men can go. Moses says, no, God, all my people go. Fine, the men and the women can go, children and the cattle stay. No, everybody, everything has to go. They go back and forth. Finally, the plagues are set upon them, and of course, the greatest of plagues, the avenging angel who comes across Egypt destroying the firstborn. At that moment, Pharaoh says, you all have to go now, and we understand why. Took him a while to get there. But the interesting thing, Benedict XVI reflects, is that all of this is around worship. When God begins to set his people free, the first thing that he gives them by way of instruction is you have to worship me. 
And then that leads to what's going to happen in the desert for 40 years as they wander. Before they get to the promised land, even before they receive the Ten Commandments. So before I can live rightly with God and other men, before I can govern them, adjudicate over them, I have to worship God rightly. It can be, and it has been, by me and others legitimately argued, that the crisis that the church is facing today is indeed a crisis of leadership on a variety of different levels, a failure the likes of which we could never have comprehended and I don't anticipate we will hopefully never see again. But that failure of leadership from top to bottom, from top to bottom, is in part connected to the fact that we simply aren't worshiping rightly. Now, we're not here to debate the theology of the Mass and things of that nature, but certainly since the Second Vatican Council, there's been a lot of confusion about how we come together to pray. And of course, in each parish, you can find five different masses that are expressed five different ways, that are expressing five different theologies, some of which may or may not actually be Catholic. And of course, you talk to one priest. Are there any lawyers in the room before I make this comment? Okay, good, I can say this. You can raise your hand. There's no reason to be ashamed to be a lawyer. Everybody's got one. Um, It's like talking to lawyers. You can get five, six different opinions from five or six different priests. And not just about doing things liturgically, then it becomes about doing things theologically. And that cohesion that we were known for as Catholics, that you could travel all over the world and go to Mass anywhere because we had a common language, we had a a common ritual praxis. And so, although I may not have known Latin as well, I certainly don't know French or German. I may not know even in my own parish what actually is going on from the 8 o'clock to the 10.30 to the noon Mass. And that cohesion that held us and bound us together not only in our worship, but then in our conduct, it seemingly has all disappeared. It's all gone. So we shouldn't really be too surprised when we find that then in the life of the church there are people who advocate uh, that it is good or it's possible to be Catholic and to be pro-abortion. The countless numbers of our elected officials who have no problem advocating the death of children in the same breath as calling themselves Catholic men and women that we have in divorce and remarry and contracept in the same manner as our separated brethren, indeed, the whole world. Of course, the spectrum reality of homosexuality and what it has done, and not only to culture, but what it has done to the church, what it has done to priesthood, in the easy manner which all these things now have been accepted as the manner of course. And if you disagree, if you question, you're a homophobe, you're a misogynist, you hate the world or this or that or the other thing. Maybe it is a little bit too simplistic to draw the connection between right worship and right conduct, but I don't think that's so. I think there is because of what God himself has chosen to reveal. That time in the desert for the chosen people was to form them so they could actually rightly enter in relationship with him and each other first. And then they could rightly govern those who would be entrusted to the care. After all, they were people on the promised land that they had to conquer. But it wasn't meant to simply subdue them, destroy them, obliterate them. It was to convert, to transform, to share the message of new life that God had given to his chosen people. That at least was the plan in theory, even if it didn't play itself out in praxis. 
And yet that has always been the case. We need to worship God in the manner that God wants to be worshipped. Even the issue of the golden calf wasn't so much an issue of idolatry as much as it was an issue of hubris and arrogance on our part to somehow assume that I, that we could make an image of God. We don't craft an image of God. God shares his image with us. We might have fits and starts about who God is, but God is the one who reveals himself to us because we could never have conceptualized God as Father, Son, and Spirit, this perfect communion of persons. We could never have been able to call God our Father. Yes, he is creator. He is the author of all existence. But we aren't just merely creatures in relationship to a benevolent creator. We are sons in relationship with the Father, who then sends his son, our brother, to reveal to us the fullness of truth. And then the two of them allow us into the fullness of this relationship by sending upon us the Spirit, who even now continues to hold the church together. And so maybe if we, we happy few, we band of brothers, can worship rightly in the sight of God and allow that right worship to properly form our conduct, We can become examples, exemplars for others as well. And so we go to Mass, even if it is difficult for us to be at Mass, even if we don't know what it is we're going to encounter when we get there. And you might be tempted to think that I have it easier than you. After all, I'm the one celebrating Mass. And so, in theory, I should have control over what it is that swirls around me. But that's not actually the case more often than not. And depending on where I've been assigned on a particular weekend and what I'm actually doing, I never know what I'm going to walk into, what I'm going to experience. And so I have to prepare myself and focus on the heart of the matter. Bread and wine, transformed, transubstantiated into the body and blood of our Lord, this gift of God himself that I first receive and then invite others to receive as well. Because then right worship forming our conduct, gives us the strength that we need to be the leaders we are called to be. The Lord never shied away from being in the public eye as much as he desired prayer, as much as he went to prayer over and over again. But he had no problem putting himself out there, in a sense, being the first one to put out into the deep as he enjoined his apostles to do the same. He was not shy in preaching and speaking truth and calling and demanding others to live according to that truth. There's nothing at all, in a sense, um, weak in our Lord, including the very gift of himself, as he makes very clear, no one takes my life from me. They're snatching it from me. I'm willingly doing this. That's the true, authentic understanding of sacrifice, not something that's forced upon me but something that I willingly give. And so the Lord himself makes clear how we are to interact with each other. We are not to lord it over one another. This is Mark's gospel, chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He replied, What do you wish me to do for you? And they answered him, Grant that in your glory we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. Jesus said to them, 
you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I will drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we can. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Not over yet, though. When the ten heard all this, they became indignant at James and John. Jesus then summoned them all and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord, of course, always as master teacher is able to appropriately, clearly instruct and admonish us. But can you imagine James and John going to God and asking this? Give us the place at your right and your left. And then, can you do what it is that I do and receive what it is that I receive? Yes, I can. As Peter himself will say, Lord, I will never deny you. And then proceeds to do so not once, not twice, but three times. James and John, who run away with all the other apostles, fear of the Jews coming at them, happening to them what it is that's happening to the Lord. Eventually, yes, they will suffer as he did, only after an outpouring of the Spirit gives them the strength to do so. But right now, they're fraught with hubris, arrogance, pride. A little bit of boldness, too, after all. And then, to add insult to injury, the other ten are kind of upset. Upset that they asked, probably upset that they didn't ask first. And all of this is kind of swirling around the Lord. I'm sure the Lord is thinking, what's going on? And so what does he tell them? This is how you lead. This is how you rule. This is how you govern. Not through power, not through an authority that conquers and subdues, but instead by a life of service, by a life of sacrifice, seeking not your own good, your own place, but instead being servant to all, being slave of all. It's a dirty word at any time, certainly in this country, certainly at this time, and yet that's precisely what we are called to be, slaves to God, where our very existence, our very breath, our very life, our beginning and our end is caught up in our Master who is the Lord. But this is the only time that slavery is a valuable thing, to be God's slave because this is a master who has already shown his willingness to give his life as ransom for many. If I'm worshiping God rightly and allowing the graces that come from that right worship to wash over me, then I also am putting into practice what he himself makes clear. Then your service as husband, as father, as brother, as neighbor, as friend, if you own your own business and you have people who work underneath you or people who, with whom you work, however you might exercise leadership, both in a spiritual and, if you will, in a practical way, all of it has to come back to this. 
Secular rulers are required to rule this way. No one can compartmentalize. I'll, I'll be a good Christian over here, but then in my workplace, in my governance of others, I'll be ruthless to the point of destroying them in order that I can have more. That can't be. I can't call myself a Christian leader and not put into practice what the Lord commands here. You cannot do what the Gentiles do. You can't lord it over them. Instead, you must serve others. You must put their needs before others. It must be done in compassion. In Luke's gospel, he says again, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What profit is there for one to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, which of course is an allusion to the kingdom being inaugurated on the cross over the Lord and of course an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. But we must die to self in order to live, to serve requires sacrifice, requires selflessness, requires a willingness to think more of others than we do of ourselves. In the best of circumstances, this becomes overwhelmingly difficult. When we find ourselves fraught with sin, overwhelmed by sin, uh, embracing mediocrity and lukewarmness, it's that much more difficult to accomplish, and yet that's precisely what it is that we are called to do. They had to think of a new word to describe this type of love. It's not a sexual love. It's not a brotherly love. It's agape. Again, Benedict XVI wrote extensively on this Christian love that thinks more of the other than it does of himself. And the only way we train ourselves to do that is not only by putting it into practice, but then also by allowing ourselves in humility to be formed by God each time we come into his presence to hear his word, to receive his word. Of course, the greatest example of this is at the mandatum, at John's gospel, when the Lord, after having broken bread with his disciples at the end of the Passover feast, takes off his garment and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Master, are you going to wash my feet? Peter says. Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will understand later. Of course, Peter, always bold, never understanding, but you've got to love his energy. You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, Unless I wash you, you will, not have, you will have no inheritance with me. Master, then not only my feet, but my hands and head as well. Now, wait a minute. You just said you weren't going to wash my feet. Now it's my hands and my... What, what, make up your mind. But he wants it all, and he wants it all now not really understanding, as the Lord himself said. The Lord then says, as I have done, you are supposed to do as well. You call me master and teacher, the Lord says, and rightly so, for indeed I am. If I, therefore, the master and the teacher, have washed your feet, so you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you a model to follow, so that as I have done for you, you should also do. What is significant about this in John's gospel, unlike the other exhortations that we just read from Matthew and Luke, this is very much connected to what the Lord then is about to go and do. 
He's already talked about bread and wine becoming body and blood. And then he does this great example of humility, washing the feet of his disciples. And then all of that now is going to become complete and total, a perfect package, if you will, in the mystery of the Lord's cross. The foot washing is not just an example of obedience and humility to the work of the Father. Yes, that's what the Son models for us. But then, because it is connected in the context of the Eucharistic sacrifice, which, of course, is then connected to the mystery of the Lord's cross, it becomes a means by which we are able to impart grace to others as grace is given to each of us in the very act itself. This is why it's called a mandate. You are required, if you are a disciple of the Lord, to be the servant of others. And the service that you render is a service in humility, in sacrifice. And if you link it to that which our Lord himself does, then it becomes salvific, not only for you, but salvific for the whole world. This is true power. This is a true authority. This is true servant leadership. It begins with God forming me. It begins with God giving me the ability to exercise it and to put it into practice. And it comes to fruition, again, through God's grace. Joseph, the power and the authority that was given to him, the headship that was bestowed upon him in order to care for Mary and our Lord and Savior, was given to him precisely because he already was the humble man the one willing to serve and think not of himself but others, the one who put himself and made himself pliable in the hands of God to be formed as God's instrument. As he has done, so we desire to do as well. Therefore, we need to do the things that he and those who have gone before us have done as well. As we come into the presence of our Eucharistic Lord and have several hours of adoration, and I encourage you to spend as much time here as you possibly can to be in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord. Pray especially for an increase of that virtue of humility, a, a true not only unworthiness, but also a recognition that all the gifts and the talents with which you have been endowed are ultimately disposed of according to the will and the design of God. The humble man recognizes not only that which is lacking in him, but also celebrates that which has been bestowed upon him. And in both instances, asks God to be a part of everything that unfolds. God who makes up for that which is lacking in me, and God who properly directs all the talents that I have to his greater honor and glory. As the Lord has done in service, so we are required to do as well. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.